Good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, my name's Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in the middle of a series entitled Our Sojourn that the video alluded to, where we're talking about who we are as a church. We're, we're looking somewhat where we've come from, where we are, but we're also talking about where we're going. In particular, we're talking about our values. We have three values as a church, truth, beauty, and goodness. And last week, we talked about what it means to be a church of truth. And at the core, it means that we believe that not only does truth exist, but truth can be known because God has revealed it to us in his word. And so we we spent a lot of time last week talking about we're a church that loves God's word, we're grounded in God's word, it directs us. And I had intended to talk about beauty this week, but I'm saving that for next week. One, because it's a difficult subject and I need more time, just to be really frank with you. Uh, But two, because in the church, I wanted to hit goodness because in the church, oftentimes we struggle to hold truth and goodness together. And I think one of the things that's always made sojourn, sojourn, is we care about truth and we stand on the word of God, but we also care about goodness. And this is kind of unique in the American church. In the American church, you have some churches that are truth churches. You could call them word churches. And those are the churches that they love the Bible. They're doctrinally sound. They worship Jesus. They they love theology. They prioritize preaching and doctrinal precision. They love to study. And then you have goodness churches, which you could call deed churches. And deed churches care about doing good, caring for the poor and the the vulnerable and the marginalized and going to people in the community who are in need and helping them. And there's, there's a history that I can't get into all of it right now, but sadly, these two churches, the word churches and the deed churches, often view one another with suspicion. And instead of learning from one another and seeing, hey, these should be held together, they view with suspicion. And so a church like in a church like ours, which tends to be more word-oriented, we often look with suspicion at those deed churches, the goodness churches. And, and some of this is really, it's, it's not a, an unfounded suspicion because a lot of those deed churches, they kind of go off the rails theologically, and they kind of go off the rails with the Bible. They deny the literal death and resurrection of Jesus, the inspiration of Scripture, um, They minimize certain commands in the Bible. And so what happens is in reaction, we don't want to be like those churches that don't place a high value. The pendulum just goes way too far. And there are way too many churches that say they love the Bible and they care about the Bible and we honor the word. And yet they talk little, if ever, about what the word actually says we should be doing in the world. It's like we want to react. We don't want to be like those churches. And so we neglect all all of the calls in the Bible towards social justice, towards caring for the poor, towards what we could sum all that up as doing good. If you read the New Testament, you go through it or just go to a concordance, go to one of those Bible websites and just type in the word good and you'll see the command to do good or some variation of that is one of the most frequent commands in the New Testament. Is everywhere. Every one of Paul's letters, pretty much, he says, in one way or another, do good. Commit yourself to doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. 
pursue goodness, not just pursue theology or right doctrine. Go and let that doctrine shape you and do good. And so if we're going to embrace our calling and and honor our past and who we want to be moving forward, we want to be a word and deed church, a truth and goodness church, because that's where real power is found. You know, I love history. I was a history major in college. I love studying history. And one of the most fascinating things about Christianity, I I would argue it's one of the proofs. If, If you're a person who says, I don't know if I believe the Bible, give me some proof that Christianity is real. I don't know if there's more convincing proof than the dynamic and powerful growth that the early church saw. I mean, you can go look this up. It's historical fact that the early church started with a few dozen people that were uneducated, common. They weren't connected. They didn't have a whole lot of money, just really average Joes. And then over the course of about three centuries, the church grew from about 30 people to 30 million. And the question is, how did that happen? And if you press in, you'll find out it didn't happen because they had killer preaching and killer music. I mean, after Nero's persecution in the first century of the early church, the Christians were forced to stop preaching in public. It was too dangerous. You get arrested. I mean, they weren't holding conferences at the Colosseum with all the best preachers, you know, handing out books. Like, they were underground. And they actually had deacons that served as bouncers that would stand at all of the doors. And unless you had been baptized, you were not allowed in because they feared lying informants from the Roman government infiltrating their midst. And so it wasn't their, their preaching, wasn't their music, And it wasn't just because it was some hip new thing. I mean, in the eyes of Rome, Christianity was an illegal cult. Prominent people scorned Christians. Neighbors would discriminate against Christians in petty ways. They were accused of all sorts of things. The early church was accused of cannibalism because they partook in the Lord's Supper. They were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they would marry each other. I mean, it was not something looked at and thought, man, that's very avant-garde and cool. I want to be a part of that. And yet, the church grew. And it, like it defies expectation how much it grew under those circumstances. The question is, how did it grow? And the answer is, even though Christians were marginalized, their lives were so different that they attracted people. It was said of the early Christians, and I quote, that they alone know how to live. They alone know how to, how to move through this life in this world. They live lives marked by spiritual power, and that power translated into good works, all kinds of good works. Christians were known for caring for the poor, and not just their own poor, but the unbelieving poor as well. In that day, Burial was a really big deal, but it was a privilege more for the rich that you had to have money to get a proper burial. Christians, they came together and they said, if you're, if you're a member of the church, you're going to get a proper burial no matter how much or how little money you have. During those three centuries, two major plagues hit you know, the world. And there were probably smallpox and measles. We don't know for sure. 
But when those plagues hit, everyone left the cities and ran for the hills. Everyone. They didn't want to be around. You know, you're getting close. Everyone gets this. You have to remember, this is a day before there was just basic knowledge about germs, diseases. They didn't have soap, things like that. And so most people left, but the Christians, a lot of them stayed. And the bishop said, no, no, we don't run. We're going to stay and help. And some estimates say as many as two-thirds of the people who had the disease that would have died didn't die because the Christians stayed. And, and oftentimes it was the Christians who helped people with the disease, they got the disease, and then they died, and the people that they helped lived. And the world took notice of that. And if you're an unbelieving Roman, and you've got this weird Christian who's here caring for you, all of a sudden, like they're caring for you when, when everyone else is leaving their loved ones to die in the streets. I mean, there's some power in that. I can keep going. The early church, there was, a, there was a disproportionate number of women. A lot more women than men in the early church. Historians have tried to figure out why that was, and they've, they've come up with at least two reasons. There's probably more. But the first reason is, back in that day, women were seen as second-class citizens, as just less valuable than men in Roman society. And so Roman families, while they might have many children, they only want one daughter. Most Roman families, if they had a second daughter, they wouldn't want to keep her. And it was perfectly legal in that day. If you had a child that you did not want, you could take that child and you could leave them at the dump or on the banks of a river where they would either be adopted as slaves by another family or they would be left to die of exposure. Now, the early church didn't practice this infanticide. Not only did they not practice it, they would go to the dumps and the riverbanks and pick up these unwanted children, most of them girls, and they would adopt them into their family and call them their daughters and their sons. Additionally, widows were in a very uh, vulnerable position in that culture. Caring for them, if you didn't have a family, you were, you were in a rough spot if you didn't have wealth. They were extremely vulnerable, and the church made it a priority that they were going to care for widows. In the year 251, the bishop of Rome wrote a letter and just kind of in passing mentioned that his congregation was supporting 1,500 widows. <laughs> One church, 1,500 widows. A non-Christian historian who wrote about the origins and history of Christianity says about that early church, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. It's like the, the culture's not going to do it, we're going to do it. And so we consider all that and then we consider the state of American evangelicalism and I think there's a bit of a disconnect. I think some things have, have you know, there's been a breakdown and we could get into the history of all of it, but we won't. But there's been a reaction against theological liberalism that has led us away to our calling to do good. And not just our calling, but our heritage and our story. This is who we are. And so the question I want to answer this morning is, what did they know and how did they get there? And how can we move towards that vision for goodness in the life of believers? And there's probably no greater one-verse summary of what it means, what goodness means in the life of a believer than Ephesians 2, 
verse 10. And so we're going to camp out in that one verse. And we've got three points, but it's really we're just breaking the verse down into three parts. We're going to talk about the basis of goodness, why we do it, how we do it, the nature of goodness, what it actually looks like, and then the practice, what it means for us to walk in it as individuals. Starting with the basis, Paul, he says at the beginning, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And if you haven't been to church in a while, I recognize that this might feel a little cliche, this whole sermon so far. Like, I went to church and they told me to be good. That's what I expected. I hope this isn't a cliche sermon for you, though, because the Christian understanding of goodness is nuanced, and it's quite counterintuitive, actually. A lot of people think if you open the Bible, the big point of it all is God lists all these things we're supposed to do so that we can be good. And if we're good enough, then he'll let us into his presence. If we perform enough good deeds, we might, you know, eventually get to come before him. What Paul teaches here in Ephesians 2, which is what makes this passage so powerful, is the exact opposite of that. That our goodness doesn't get us to God, it's God's goodness that brings us to him. And the preceding verses, verses 8 and 9, two of the more famous verses in the Bible, Paul spells it out really clearly. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now that word grace just means gift, like it means gift. So you've been saved by grace, it's a gift. But then just because sometimes there's confusion, Paul says this, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do it. You didn't do anything for this gift. It is the gift of God. And just in case that's not clear, he goes on and says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul wants to be abundantly clear that salvation begins with God, not with us. Or to put it another way, in God's kingdom, grace always precedes our goodness. We don't go forth and do good until God's done a good work in us. The order here is exceedingly important because if you get the order wrong, you can really do a lot of damage. You can do spiritual, mental, psychological damage to yourself. You can do it to other people. My guess is that many of you you grew up in churches or homes where you were told the essence of Christianity is being good. We're Christians, and so we go do this stuff. But they never told you how you go and do it. I mean, they told you what to do, but they didn't tell you the, the why and how. And so your brain, what, what, what you came to understand and assume is, okay, what it means to be a Christian is you go behave in these certain ways. And what Paul is desperately trying to tell us in Ephesians 2 is what it means to be a Christian is that God does a work in you first and foremost. We are his workmanship. Part of the emphasis Paul's making is he, he's done the work. He started it. And that word workmanship, it's drawn a lot of attention throughout the years, uh, it's fairly unique. Paul only uses it one other time, and different translations translate it different ways. Some say workmanship, some say handiwork. Others say masterpiece because it might be connected with uh, a work of art, this, this word. The big point 
is that God is crafting us like a sculptor with, with a hammer and a chisel. God is, you could even say, looking, looking ahead just a little bit, God is creating us, recreating us. Like what Paul's getting at here is not just that we are God's workmanship in the sense that he created us all, you know, and formed our bodies. He's talking about this on a spiritual level. That in Christ Jesus, God, he's making us new. And C.S. Lewis once said, the essence of Christianity is not that you become a nicer person, but that you become a new person. And those are radically different visions for the Christian life. Is Christianity about becoming a nicer person? No, it's about becoming a new person, God doing a new work in you. This illustration is cheesy, but I think it's pretty good. Christianity isn't about becoming a faster caterpillar, you know? It's about becoming a butterfly. It's about experiencing transformation. And so if we're going to understand this call to goodness, we have to see it begins with God and his grace, which is poured out in our lives, which overflows in gratitude and then leads us out to go do good works. One more illustration, then we'll move on. In the story of the prodigal son, you have an older brother. He's responsible, obedient, dutiful. He kept the rules. He was incredibly moral. By almost all accounts, I mean, he seemed a little rigid, but by almost all accounts, he was what you would call a good person. And there are a whole lot of people that think that's what Christianity is all about, living a responsible, moral upstanding life. But the older, older brother was also a rather joyless person. Under the surface, he was proud, arrogant, judgmental, bitter. He didn't have a heart of compassion or mercy. And yet, think about Christians and think about Christianity and how often that's, that's a pretty close description of quote-unquote Christians. They do a whole lot of good things, but underneath they're arrogant, they're bitter, they're self-righteous. It's because it's about the good works. That's the picture of being a nicer person. The picture of the new person is the younger brother who made an absolute mess of his life, totally irresponsible. And he comes home and he's thinking, how am I going to grovel before the father to let him let me back in the house? And the father runs to him. And he kisses him and he gives him his robe and a ring and he kills a fattened calf and he celebrates with a party. That's what it means to become new when you experience grace like that in your life. And to experience that grace changes us. See, a call to be moral can make you nice and decent, but only the grace has the power to make you new. Only grace has the power to fundamentally change the structures of your heart. And so as we contemplate what it means to be a church that values goodness, you have to see that grace comes first. And that our goodness is not about achieving. Our goodness is a response to God's goodness in our life. Our good works are in response to the good news. We are God's workmanship. Paul continues... So up to this point, he's saying, listen, it's all about God. God has saved you. It's not your doing, not a result of works. No one can boast. God saved you. And then he says, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. So verse 9, it's by grace you've been saved, not as a result of works. Verse 10, but you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to our works. I mean, just sit with that for a minute. Why did God save you? Paul says right here, for good works. He didn't just save you so you could go to heaven when you die, so you could have eternal security or you could show up at church. He saved you for good works. What are these good works that he saved us to? What is goodness? You know, this series has been a bit hard for me because I like definitions. Like, define it. How do you define goodness in a sentence? It's hard. It's hard to define. It's easier to describe. Some descriptions I came across. One is goodness is actively choosing good over evil, which I don't know if that counts because good's in the definition. Another is goodness is the choice to pursue and cultivate flourishing on this earth. Probably the best one I came across is goodness is participating with God in the kingdom work of calling everything back to good. Goodness is participating with God in the kingdom work of calling everything back to good. And so if you think of in the beginning, Genesis 1, after each act of creation, what does God say? It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. At the beginning, everything was good. Adam and Eve rebelled. Sin entered the world with sin. Thistles and thorns came into the world and corrupted the world. Now, there are actual thistles and thorns that grew in the garden, but that's also a metaphor for just all of the ugliness, the darkness, the brokenness that came into the world because of sin. And so our world, while it's still good, it's also broken. While it's good, it's filled with evil. But the promise is that Jesus Christ, he came not just, not just to die so we could go to heaven. He came to restore what was good and make it good again, and actually make it an even higher level of good, I think. And we're told that at the end of the age, the very end of human history, he's going to make all things new. And so the world started good. We're told it's going to end good. Right now, we're in this intermediate state where, where Christ has come, and he's promised to do this work, and he's called us to join him in this work of doing good in his beautiful yet broken world. God created us, recreated us in Christ, like we just talked about. Just as he did that, he's going to recreate and restore all of creation. And James says in James 1.18, I think that we are the first fruits of that restoration. That we're supposed to be pictures. We're supposed to be a glimpse into the future reality that's coming through Christ. I know that's a lot, but I want you to keep tracking with me here because it all comes together because a lot of people think that the commands in the Bible, they're just an arbitrary or random list of rules that God has given us. Like, where did he come up with all these rules? 
if you're tracking with what I'm saying, you'll understand that the commands in the Bible are God saying, listen, I want you to live as I created you to live, and I want you to live as you will live when all's said and done and I make all things new. So when God says don't lie, he doesn't just say don't lie because lying's bad. He's saying you were not created to lie. The human soul was not made to live in duplicity. When he says don't lust after things that are not your own, you weren't created to do that. We could go on and on with the different commands. Don't steal. Don't cheat people. Don't slander. Don't tear people down. Don't grow bitter with envy. Why? Because it's not who I created you to be, and it's not who you're going to be when my work in you is done. So stop it. Not just because it's wrong, because it's not who I intended for you to be. I mean, we were created to bless, to cultivate, to bring forth life and beauty and goodness. And so when we think about doing good on a personal level, this is what the Bible calls holiness, which you could also translate wholeness, living as we were created to live. There's a personal dimension, but there's also a social dimension to this goodness. And typically when Paul talks about goodness in the New Testament, he's talking about social good. In Titus 3.8, he says good works, he defines them pretty much. Good works are things that are excellent and profitable for everyone. So we're called to live, not just as we are created to live, not just as one day we will live, we're also created to go and testify with our works, to call the world back to good, so that it affects other people. What, how do we summarize that? I don't think there's a greater summary of this social good we're called to than Micah 6.8. Micah's wondering, what does God really want? What's God really after from his people? And we're told, he has shown you. I love that. Because Mike is asking these questions like, no, he's shown you, oh man, what is good. God's already told you what's good. And what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sum it all up for me. Okay, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Now, this verse has rang out through the ages because of how clear and succinct it is, but it's also because Jesus pretty much references this verse. You see, in, in Jesus's, when he walked this earth, there were people who were morally pretty darn good called the Pharisees, and they did all sorts of good works. One of them was they were the best tithers this world's ever seen. Like, they tithed off of everything. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe out of your spice racks. But listen to this. This is our Lord speaking. Woe to you, you tithe. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What a phrase. So there's a lot of commands in God's law. What are the weightier ones? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So at the heart of God and at the heart of God's call in our lives is to pursue justice. 
And in our day, this word justice, it's hijacked by different people. It's weaponized at times. We talk about social justice warriors as a way to insult people that you disagree with. It's a really controversial topic in the culture. And, and that could be because it's got a lot of defini different definitions. But for Christians, justice as it's defined by the Bible, it's not controversial. It is. It's the weightier matter of the law. And we cannot turn a blind eye to the call to act justly and do justice and have any integrity. Justice in the Bible means a lot of things. It means to treat people equitably. It means to give people their rights. It prohibits oppressing people. It prohibits perjury, lying to hurt other people, or bribery, making money off of taking advantage of people. But it means more than that. Justice means, it means looking out for the vulnerable and caring for the vulnerable. Usually, in the Bible, when, when this word justice is brought up, it's connected to one of four classes of people. Widows, orphans, the poor, and immigrants. People who were, you know, most at risk in society of being trampled on, forgotten, or pushed to the side. And God continues to say, no, care about them, care about these things. I mean, at one point, God identifies himself as a father to the fatherless. And so what that means is we, as his people, we have to have a deep commitment to helping and caring for the most vulnerable people and classes of people in our society. Believers or unbelievers. It's our call and it's our burden. Now, that's justice and what drives this is mercy. And in that Micah passage, it seems like you have to act justly and then you have to love mercy, like they're two separate things. But I actually think they're two sides of the same coin because justice is our action, but mercy is more of our posture. The word mercy could be translated as, you know, faithfulness or compassion or pity or solidarity the point is, we go and care for the vulnerable because we have a heart of compassion towards them. We don't look down on people who are suffering. We look and, and we, with eyes that, you know, eyes to see in human solidarity, that that could easily be us. And so our heart goes out to them. We don't assume a superior position over them. We don't say, well, they were stupid and did these things, and that's why they're poor. Or that's why this is happening. We look and realize that could easily be me. And so we're moved by compassion. We're moved by mercy. You know, this was one of the things that really distinguished, set apart the early church, because in that day, especially the upper echelons of society, they viewed this concept of mercy to be a merciful person, they viewed it as a character defect. And that day, pity was considered to be a pathological emotion. He said, pity was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise, excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. Some of you heard that and you're like, that sounds like the home I grew up in. Like to show pity on people, that's just because you're young and immature. 
mercy. It was inexcusable because, well, no, people should get what they deserve. And yet the early church was going around and pouring themselves out in love and good deeds to everyone, regardless of how good or not good they were, how deserving or undeserving they were. Why? What drove this in them? It's the gospel, right? When Christians say, well, I don't want to help this person because I don't know if they deserve it. I'm like, have you ever read the Bible? Because the heart of our salvation is that we were all lost and deserved nothing but wrath, and God reached down his hand and saved us. And now all of a sudden, we're going to be the servant going around, well, he might have forgiven me of that debt, but I'm not going to forgive these people. He might have saved me, but I, I don't really care so much about them. Like, what a strange, bizarre, perverted understanding of Christianity. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us merciful because God has shown us mercy. And that mercy, it drives us out to go and do justice. To love because he first loved us. It's the nature of goodness. We want to live painting a picture of what life under the sovereign rule of our good God looks like and will look like. Lastly, practice of goodness. The last phrase here is kind of mind-bending because Paul says, let's just step back for a minute and do the whole thing. He says, for we are God's workmanship. So God saved us. He's forming us. He's recreating us in Christ Jesus to do good works. So he saved us with the intention of us going forth doing good. And then Paul says, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's recreating us to go do good works. And these good works, sometime in eternity past, God prepared them for you to walk in. Isn't that crazy? Like he ordered and ordained certain things to come to pass so that in your life right now, there might be good works prepared for you to go step into. And because we're his workmanship, that means he's taken all the stuff that we've been through and the situations we're in, and he brings it together and he weaves it together in his beautiful, powerful sovereignty that there are good works waiting for us to step into. You know, because he is the master workman, God uses everything. He uses your race, your gender, your story, your experiences, your suffering, your failures, your gifts, your talents, all of your experiences. He brings all of those things together to make you uniquely gifted and uniquely suited to step into certain good works. Put it another way, I think what Paul's saying here is there are some doorways of opportunity only you can walk through because of what God has done in you and how he's formed you. There are some needs only you can meet, some lives only you can reach, some people only you can speak into in this moment because of God and how he wired you. Like he, has, he has this plan. <laughs> I love it. It's, he's like a great father, right? I want you to do good, and then he sets it up for us. So we don't have to go figure it out, scratch our heads. We just have to look around. He's already prepared them. And I think so many of us, 
we suffer from a, a, a failure of imagination. We can't imagine how God might use us. And a, a failure of expectation, like there are good works waiting for us to step into. I think so much of the American church suffers and the consumerism just kind of spreads because we don't, we don't take this verse to heart. The sovereign God of the universe was like, I've got a good work for you and I want you to walk in it. This is, it can be challenging, but I think it's profoundly comforting and it, and it shows the manifold wisdom of God and the beauty of God and how he uses people. You know, because I'm the one preaching up here usually, I often get a lot of requests from people for help. And the requests are an honor. To be asked to help people when they're in need, it really is. It's, it's an overwhelming honor. But a lot of times, people ask me for help, and I end up connecting them with someone else in our congregation. And it's not because I want to pawn them off, usually, sometimes. Uh, not usually, it's because they're going through something and I can offer maybe some general help, but I know someone that God has used and shaped in a certain way that can help them so much more than I could ever help them. And so I think of Pastor Chad. You know, Pastor Chad has been through so much in life. He's been through so much suffering and hardship and he's learned about God in ways that I, like I hope to, to know God in ways that he knows him before I die. And so if people are suffering, I can offer some words. If people are in, going through a really hard season, I can, I can offer some help. But usually I'm going to point you to, to Pastor Chad. Because God, he created, he's recreated him in Christ Jesus to be someone who comes along and comforts mourners. Think of Pastor James in a similar vein. James, God has given him a spirit of comforting and encouragement and support especially in the face of loss and in the midst of loss. I don't know if anyone else is like this. When I get around people who've just lost a loved one, I just feel like I have no idea what to say. I don't know what to do. I get kind of awkward. James shows up. He puts his arm around you. And it's like the voice of God is speaking to you when he talks to you. It's like the presence of God is present. I think of my friend Jackie, who struggled and suffered through years of infertility, and ultimately God led her to adopt, uh, to grow the family. And in the midst of that, God has given her a heart for orphans and adoption, and she's become so wise in the realms of infertility and how to navigate all of that. I could probably list 20 more off the top of my head, people who, who they've recognized God has formed me in this way, and he's prepared these good works, and so I'm going to go step into them. And so my question for you is, what are the good works you're stepping into? Like we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means we should be working. And what are the good works that God has prepared for you? For us to be a church that values goodness, it means we recognize the Christian life is more than just going to church and singing and hearing preaching and worshiping. It's also participating in life with God who's actively involved in our world. And I would argue in a day and an age where the truth is becoming less and less kind of relevant to a lot of people, important to them, 
like our proclamation and having all the right philosophical and apologetic arguments for our faith, that's not bad. But I think our witness is going to be proved in the streets. It's going to be proved in how we care for the poor and the hurting and the vulnerable. And I'll, I'll leave you with this verse. Peter, First Peter, writing to the early church, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day when he visits us. Think of that verse. He's like, I know they're going to slander you. They're going to call you cannibals. They're going to call you incestuous. But live really good lives. Like, don't lie, don't, steal, don't, don't cheat, don't steal. Live a life of integrity. But also go and do good works. So even though they slander you, they see you, and they become slack-jawed. And some of them are actually going to be converted through that. That's powerful. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed on our behalf, we're reminded that our goodness flows from God's grace. We're reminded that we are saved not because we are good or good enough. We're saved wholly and completely because of the goodness of God and by the goodness of God. So as we come to the table, it's an opportunity for us to confess. You know, some of you, you haven't been stepping into good works. You've been caught in this cycle of kind of self-centeredness and self-absorption. Communion's a time to be recentered and, and to have your uh, horizons expanded a bit. For the others of you, you hear all this and you're like, man, I'm just struggling to breathe right now. Keep my head above water. My prayer for you is that you come to the table and you just be reminded Christianity is ultimately a religion of grace, not works. And our works flow from grace. And if you're struggling right now, I pray that you would be overwhelmed by the grace and goodness and love of God because that's what really changes us and that's what moves us out. If you're here and you're not a believer, I encourage you, I plead with you to know the God who gave his son to show you compassion and bring you home. Let me pray.